Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to Grace Bible Church again. My name is West. I was not here last week. I was on kind of an annual hunting trip uh, with a, a couple other guys from GBC. Really good to be back and, um, and, and good to see everybody in worship alongside everybody again. Um, before we begin the sermon, which is on Joshua 8, as you can probably see, I have, I have two quick announcements. The first one is I want to remind everyone that next week on Saturday morning, starting at 9 a.m., is our, our annual turkey trot. And last year, we had really horrible weather. I mean, it was terrible. And there were like a million people who showed up. It was awesome. And uh, this year, the long-range forecast, and who knows, is awesome. So come next week. There's a one-mile run. There is a three-mile run. Uh, if you want to walk either of those runs, I promise you will not be alone. And uh, I mean, really, it's mostly about the breakfast tacos and, and the good fellowship. So it is a lot of fun. Um, please, please join us for that. It, it, it's great. The other thing I wanted to say, just circling back real quick on our special offering, if you're new, that might have sounded kind of weird. I want to explain it a little bit. In lieu of capital fundraising campaigns where I would preach on stewardship, but really I'm just trying to get you to give money, we do twice a year a special offering. We ask our partners and our regular attenders to give over and above their regular offering, and it basically funds like a new building expansion on this end of that building for children's ministry because we're like overrun with kids in the best sort of way. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully we're going to buy some property over here. We've, we've got offers on some land. So all of these special offerings will, will go to fund those things. And um, again, we do them in lieu of capital fundraising campaigns, which you should like. Because um, I, when I wasn't a pastor, I hated capital fundraising campaigns uh, and still do. So uh, I think that's it. Let me pray and we will jump into God's word together. Father, we love you. We thank you for just uh, the amazing things that we get to find out in Scripture, and specifically in Joshua chapter 8, God. I pray that we would better understand your judgment and, and how you're a, a good king and, and a righteous king, and so there has to be a judgment. But Father, I pray that we would appreciate your grace all the more, for we are saved from your judgment by grace through faith in your son Jesus. And so, Help us to appreciate your grace and the judgment that we are saved from all the more and that, that we would live lives in awareness of your holiness as a result of our time in Joshua chapter 8. God, teach us everything that you want to teach us. Use your word. I pray that your spirit would quicken our minds. I pray that you would help me not be a distraction. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been in a, a time of your life where, where you just were wondering if, if God was for you or against you? I, my mom, who passed away uh, 10 or 12 weeks ago, she spent like 40 years of her life before she became a Christian really very seriously questioning whether if God was that good, God could be for her because she knew that she was a sinner. And, um, and it, was, it was something that she was constantly wrestling with. And like, is, if, if God is who he says he is, is he for me or is he against me? It, it, was, it was tough. And, and even after she became a Christian, if I'm being really honest, um, she, she would circle back to that question. But, but I mean, just imagine languishing in the ambiguity of, of not knowing whether God is for you or against you for 40 years. And, and, and then even... Once you get the gospel, you, in your you know, 
your worst moments, you're, you're circling back to that. I, I don't think my mom's alone there. I, I don't think she's the only one at Grace Bible Church who has seriously questioned how a, a righteous and holy God could love us in our sins. I, I, I promise you, I've, I've dealt with that question off and on all of my life, just like my mom and I think just like a lot of you. If you've ever wrestled with that, this passage, I, I hope, will help. It'll take a while to get there, but, but I hope it will help. Turn with me, if you would, to Joshua chapter 8. And we're going to start in verses 1 and 2. We're going to spend more time there than we are in any other passage. So if, if you're worried about getting through the whole thing, just <clears throat> we won't cover it all like we're going to cover verses 1 and 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. I'm just going to pause right there for a second. I didn't know how to pronounce that two-letter word, I. I, I went to my Bible software, and there's an, an element on my Bible software where you can push the sound button, and it actually says out loud the pronunciation of I. And, and the way that the Bible software, and it, it's good stuff, so we can trust it, it says I. And it, it reminds me of, of Roy Kent on Ted Lasso. I. So I'm not going to say it I every time, but that's how you properly pronounce I'm just going to say I, okay? Because that's just me, I. But according to the Bible software, I. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you. Arise and go up to I. See. I have given you into your hands the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land, and you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoils and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. Let me give you a little bit of the context here. We're coming out of chapter 7. Chapter 7 was a military disaster. Okay, like it, it did not go well. <clears throat> Israel had already tried to defeat Ai, and, and they had failed miserably. They had lost lives. It, it was really bad. And we, we find out it's because Achan, who is a guy, an Israelite, had taken some of the plunder reserved for the Lord when they captured Jericho. Okay, so in Jericho, when they, when they, they routed Jericho, they were supposed to dedicate all of basically the treasures unto God, and Achan was having no part of it. He's like, I'm going to take a little something for me. And, and God didn't like that, and so Israel loses. And it's basically caused by Achan's covetousness and, and Israel's, quite frankly, ambivalence about holding to God's directives. And now, as we come into chapter 8, and Israel has experienced its first military defeat, Israel's wondering, is God my ally or my enemy? And it's kind of the same question that we were asking earlier. Like, it, does, does God love me or does God hate me? Like, where do I stand before a righteous God? And look, it's a fair question. It's, it's an absolutely fair question. And if you've never asked that question, you maybe haven't really dealt with your own depravity, nor maybe have you dealt with the holiness of God. So it's a question that most of us should ask. Where do I stand? Between, before a holy God in light of my sin. The first thing that the Lord says to Joshua, after this defeat, after sin 
has been revealed in the camp of Israel. He says, do not fear and do not be amazed. Now, the reason that God says do not fear and do not be amazed is because God needs to say do not fear and do not be amazed. Israel is both fearful and dismayed. And probably for good reason. Look, here's how this unfolded. After they won in Jericho, and it was easy. After they win in Jericho, they start to think that they won the war. And the reality is God won the war. But they think that they're all that in like a bag of chips or something like that. And they think they're pretty neat. And they also think that God is like a lucky rabbit's foot. Like, here's what I do. God is with us. We can't lose. We're going to take the Ark of the Covenant, which is going to be the emblem of the lucky rabbit's foot. And wherever we go with the Ark of the Covenant, we're not only going to succeed, we're going to conquer. And so they don't think it's that big of a deal. Next on the list is, is I. And I's puny compared to Jericho. And so some spies go in and they're like, hey, this is going to be small potatoes. Let's leave most of the people at home. Like, we don't need to worry them. Let's just take an elite group and we'll crush them because we've got the rabbit's foot. And they get crushed. And they get crushed. Look, the greatest danger to your spiritual vitality, I, I hope you'll hear me. I, I mean this from the depths of my soul. The greatest danger to your spiritual vitality is taking too much credit for success. They did not win the war. I will double down on that. They did not win the war. God won the war. That, that's how it worked. They're taking too much credit, and they get cocky. And they get cocky. Have you ever stopped to think about why all these uber-gifted pastors like build these incredibly big churches and then flame out? Like They, they go have sex with someone who's not their wives, and you know, like there's all sorts of like, you're like, what? How, how did they get to, you preach the gospel, how, you know, what? You ever wonder how that happens? I can tell you how it happens. These guys who are uber gifted, they start reading their own press clippings. Shoot, they might be writing their own press clippings. They might be posting their own, press, you know, like, and they start to think it's all about them. And they, they, they start talking about developing their platform and you know, all of this stuff. Some of you are at Grace Bible Church because you came from something like that. And, and you just need to know that the reason that happens is because pastors and other gifted people, and it, it can happen in ministry, it can happen in business, it can happen wherever, they start taking too much credit. And, and they think, it is all about me, and I don't really need God, or not that much. And man, that's a bad, bad place to be. My strategy in life to avoid such a fall, I have steadfastly pursued mediocrity for 20 years at Grace Bible Church. It's not going to happen here. I, you know, I'm joking about that. I mean, I really, I, I try really hard. But I'll also tell you this, y'all, and I, I, <laughs> if you've been here a while, Resist the temptation to say amen, okay? Like, you've never really been really great at that anyway. Just keep not being great at it in this just one little moment here. I am not the most gifted preacher in the United States. Like, you look at a guy named John Piper. You got, look at a guy named Tim, Tim Keller. 
there are so many people out there when I listen to them, it makes me insecure because I'm not as smart as them, I'm, I'm not as eloquent as them, I'm, I'm not as dramatic or impactful or, or you know, charismatic, whatever it is, I, I'm not. And I don't have to be. Like, I, it took me a long time to get to that, but I, but I don't have to be because this isn't built like on this pulpit. This is built on the priesthood of believers. Like, the reason Grace Bible Church, you know, struggles with parking and seating and, and children and all this stuff isn't because, like, the pulpiteer is, like, exceptional. It's because the priesthood of believers has been making disciples for 20 years. And, and some of you have done it so well that you're like, God works through me, and I, you know, what else would I ever want to do? And that, that's how it's supposed to be. So it, I'm glad that I am as gifted as I am and no more and no less because I think it's God working through the priesthood of believers and I, I actually love that. that. That's what I'm most proud of. Also, before we move on to the next section, I want you to note God's provision for Israel. Verse 2, And you shall do to I and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only, and this is the difference here between Jericho and I, only its spoils and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And it goes on in verse 27, and this is in the aftermath of victory. Spoiler alert, but that's where we're going with this. Verse 27, only the livestock and the spoils of that city Israel took as their plunder according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So God said, it's going to be a little different. I'm going to give you all the plunder. And then they, they capture I, and God is good to his word. He gives them all the plunder. Why is that important? Let's ask this question. Why did Achan become covetous? So they're conquering Jericho a couple of chapters ago, and God has said, all the plunder of Jericho goes to me. And Achan's like, uh-uh, I'm not going to do it that way. So he stuffs some, you know, artifacts or jewels or whatever it is down in his trousers or something. And that creates a lot of hurt in chapter 7. What, why did he do it? Because he somehow developed bad theology. That's the answer. Achan somehow developed bad theology. He thought that God was miserly. Theology is the truth about God, the word about God. He thought God was miserly. He thought God maybe was selfish. He thought maybe God was incapable of providing for him and his family. And so he took matters into his own hands. Have you done that? I've done that. I, I've done that a lot in my life. Now, it's hard to imagine Achan doing that because God brought Achan through the wilderness for 40 years. They wandered around in a wilderness that didn't grow food, and God provided quail and manna from heaven for 40 years. Okay, so God has been provisional for Achan for 40 years, and yet he gets to a point where he says, I'm not sure God's going to provide for me. And that's why he stuffs treasures into his pants pocket. I'm not sure God's going to provide for me. It seems crazy, right? 40 years of provision, and he's like, I don't know, it's going to happen. Isn't that how sin works? Isn't that how your sin works? You believe 
some lie about God inexplicably because God has been faithful to you, hasn't he? And, and, and yet there comes a point where you're like, I'm not sure God's going to provide for me. I, I want a spouse. I want it now. And, and so I'm not sure God can do that anymore. And so I am going to compromise to get what I want. Or I, I want this job and I want it now. And, and so I'm going to badmouth my opponent to get what I want. You see how it works? We, we don't trust God's goodness. We have bad theology, a bad understanding of who God is, and that leads us into compromise. We believe a lie. And repentance, by the way, when we genuinely repent, the, the way it feels for me at least, I think it's the way it feels for everyone, is, is you realize that you have bought hook, line, and sinker this lie, and you're like, wait a second. God is not miserly. Wait a second. God is benevolent, wholly benevolent. He wants what is absolutely best for me. So wherever I am right now, this is God's will for me, and he is working for his good purposes. I can sit here patiently, and I can trust that one day God will provide those things that he thinks are absolutely in my best interest. Here's my point. Achan stole in Jericho what God was already planning to give him in the very next town. You get that? And, and so this idea that, that you get to 26 years old and, and all of a sudden, like, God hasn't met your expectations in career or a spouse or whatever it is, and so you're like, I'm going to take matters into my own hand. Maybe his will for you is 27 or 28. Or maybe his best for you, for whatever reason, is, is singleness. I'm not saying that's true for everyone, but I'm saying it's true for some, and, and that's great if it is. But I promise you, compromise is not the way to go. Here's the truth. Without good theology, without good theology, you're going to ask bad questions. And let me let me give you an example of that. Achan, in order to take these things and shove them down in his pants pockets because he wasn't sure that God was going to provide for him, he, he had to ask this question. Is God willing to sacrifice what he has to give it to me, to, to give generously to me and my family? Like, is God really going to do that? Because I'm not sure he is. So you ask, you ask a bad question. If you have bad theology, bad theology leads to bad questions. Is God willing to sacrifice what he has to give me and my family what I need? It's a bad question. Let me just kind of run with this just a little bit. Indulge me a little. Sacrifice. When we use the word sacrifice, when we talk about living sacrificially, I think it's interesting. Sacrifice Tell me if I'm wrong here, because I've literally just been thinking about this. Like, I didn't get this from people who are smarter than me. I, like, I've come up with this. So I, this, this could be our heresy moment. Sacrifice, logically, I think, is predicated on finite resources or abilities, right? So here, here's what I mean by that. I can sacrifice power or time or money. Like, like... God, because I'm the senior pastor and one of the elders of Grace Bible Church, God has, has given me some power here, like some authority. 
And, and my job as a senior pastor is to delegate a lot of that authority to very capable staff people and, and so that they can make decisions and they can make decisions better than I can make decisions. And, and that's, that's a sacrifice of power. I have limited power and I'm, I'm giving it to other people. But, but I promise you, my power is limited. Okay, fair enough, right? Limited power, I give it away, that's sacrifice. How about time? I can sacrifice my time. Like if somebody needs something and, and I am compelled by the Spirit, I will not use that time to do what I want. I will use that time to, to love on someone or to serve someone or, or to provide counsel or something like that. And that is a sacrifice because my time is limited. Your time is limited. We are finite beings. That's, that, that's what it means. Finite means limited. My time is limited. My money. I I can give money to some charitable causes. I can, but my money is limited. I, I've only got so much of it. So if I give to an organization such that I don't, I'm not able to do what I want all the time, that is a sacrifice premised on limited resources. Okay, so I, I think I've kind of conveyed that effectively, hopefully. How does an infinite God sacrifice his power? You see, like, God gives authority to, to people who are doing different things. I mean, at, at your office, you might have authority. Uh, in, in the church, you might have authority. That, you know, God gives authority. But is God's authority limited? Is God's power limited? Our good theology says God is omnipotent. That means he can give all sorts of authority, and he is not diminished in any way. He, he's never less omnipotent. There's no such thing. By definition, you're contradicting yourself. So it, it's just a little different with God. I, I think he can give that stuff. I just don't think it's sacrificial. He, he's always omnipotent. Can, can God sacrifice his time? God's eternal. God created time. God exists outside of time. He's not sacrificing his time. His time is not limited by definition. So I don't think it's sacrificial. Can, can God be sacrificial in giving us money? Is, is that going to somehow put him you know, in a deficit? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That's the world's greatest understatement. He he created money. He created economy. He created government. He created the world. He does not need our money. And so he can give whatever he wants to us. It, it is sacrifice if it is premised on a finite resource or ability. And God is infinite in all of those things. And so I don't think in these instances God is sacrificial. Now, let's put that away. We'll come back to it a little bit later. For the sake of time, I'm going to summarize verses 3 through 17. It mostly lays out a military strategy for conquering I. It's a nifty plan that God creates that draws the fighting men of I out in pursuit of a retreating Israelite army. And this is something that they saw in chapter 7. Israel has fled before, and so this is like same song, second verse, at least in the eyes of the king of Ai. And so they chase him out. And God says, 
when they chase you, when you go into retreat and all the fighting men of I leave the protection of I to chase you, we're going to have another group of people lying in ambush and they're going to go into the now unprotected city of Ai, and they're going to burn it to the ground. And then when the Israelite army that was retreating sees the smoke coming up, they'll turn around and they'll fight, and the people of Ai will turn to go back to their protection, and it'll be engulfed in flames. And they're going to be flanked. And that's how we're going to win this thing. That's that's what God says in verses 3 through 17. It's a strategy. It's a military strategy. God specifically and repeatedly says that all the fighting men will be a part of this battle. All the Israelites, will not, not this select few, that's what the spies in the first iteration of an attack on I in chapter 7 were about. We're just going to take a handful of people. God says, no, no, everyone's going. You might have different roles, you might have different gifts, but everyone's going to participate. Sounds a little bit like the body of Christ. Different roles, but everyone has a role. The other thing that God says in verses 3 through 17, very clearly, it will be God, not a group of spies who comes up with the military strategy. Israel's job, at least in chapter 8 of Joshua, is to execute on God's strategy. Now, I thought about how to apply this principle, and I mean, there's so many different things I I could do with this. Let me say this first of all. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be strategic. I think God has given us wisdom. I think God has given us discernment. I think God has given us minds so that we can be strategic at times. I'm, I'm for strategic. I just wonder how often I don't seek God because I think I've got it all figured out. Like, that's a problem, right? I I know that God's given wisdom and I, I know that God's given discernment, but, but are you like me? Like, sometimes you're like, hey, I went to school for this. I, I'm kind of an expert. I don't, at work, you know, that's not God's realm. Like, I've got this. You ever do that? Is is there this bifurcation between the secular and the sacred? Between what you do for work and what you do on Sundays? I, I think that can be a real problem. Again, I'm not saying you can't use your mind at work. Obviously, you can and obviously you should, but not at the expense of seeking God. Not at the expense of seeking God. How, how about this one? God has given us a strategy in terms of our social lives. We, we are to live in purity. We are to esteem the institution of marriage. Uh, we are to keep the marriage bed undefiled. Any of you here have this temptation to go, you know what, God said all that, and that, that was a good strategy back in the day, but it's... <laughs> It's things have changed. And, and God's not really the expert anymore. I'm the expert because I'm 24 years old and I know everything. And, and so, like, I get that he said, you know, not to have sex outside of marriage, but it's a different day. I'm going to do what I want because I want a husband or I want a wife. Isn't that the same thing? God's given you a mind, He wants you to use his, your mind. But when he's given you strategy, when he's given you directive, he doesn't want you to come up with something 
new. I think about this in the church. Like, has God given the church a strategy? The answer is yes. He, had, he said, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Jesus talking. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've taught you. There's your strategy. And I'll be with you to the ends of the day. There's your comfort. So God's given us a strategy for the church. And you know what the church does? The church, church is like, yeah, that's, people are busy. That's kind of hard. We're going to do a billboard campaign. That's, that's going to be our alternative strategy. And I, I think it's going to work just as good because how compelling is a really great billboard? Or then maybe we go, you know, we need to add to the billboard campaign a bait and switch event for the youth. And, and, and we'll lure them in and then we'll, we'll pounce on them with the gospel. I'm all for wisdom. I'm all for discernment. But I'm also all for believing that what is God has told us to do and how God has told us to do it still works. Still works. Let's move on to verses 18 through 29. I'm going to read this whole thing. It's long. Bear with me. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward I, for I will give it, I, into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven. And they had no power to flee this way or that way. For the people who fled to the wilderness, who they were chasing, turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all of Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them so that they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side, some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai, they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all of the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he held stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoils of the city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it in the entrance of the city gate, whatever was left of it, and raised over it a heap of stones which stands there to this day. And there's a lot going on in this passage. I'm going to kind of hone our focus on two things. The first thing is, is simply the severity of God's judgment. Like when you listen to this being read, when you read along, 
I think most of us are like, oh, this is, this is heavy, this is hard. It, it can kind of, the, the severity of God's judgment can lead us in, in two different directions. And let me kind of coach you through those a little bit. The first reaction to the severity of God's judgment would, to be, would be to decry the judgment as too harsh, too punitive, maybe even barbaric. And I just, there's one thing that I think we are prone to engage in, which is kind of dumb. We sometimes look back on stuff like this and, and are like, that is so primitive. That is so barbaric. Look, the last 100 years of human existence makes this look tame. We are not so sophisticated that we've moved beyond this. We in our sophistication have expanded this. So just know that. Now, you still have the issue of it being too harsh, too punitive. I'm not going to take the tension of that away. I feel that tension too. I do. Here's what I would say. We come at passages like this with the foundational thought that sin is not as bad as God thinks sin is. That's a problem. We think those people didn't deserve to die. And first of all, we don't know those people. And second of all, the reason we think those people don't deserve to die is because we think we don't deserve to die, but God has very clearly said the wage of sin is death. Now, we will affirm that until it gets to reality. And then we're like, oh, I'm not saying, therefore, it's easy. I think it's hard. But I think that's where the battle is fought. Like, do we deserve the judgment of God? And if the answer is yes, it's still hard. But God is not unjust at that point. Now, that's, that's the first thought. The second, and I think the better thought, would be just to remember the seriousness of sin. To, to remember, again, the seriousness of sin, regardless of the company you keep. And, and what I mean by that is, in chapter 7, God judged Israel. He did. He let the people of Ai win over Israel to judge Israel for their sin. In chapter 8, he's going to judge the sin of Ai. Later on in the Bible, when Israel falls into gross sin, he's going to let Ites, different peoples who are pagans, come and sack Israel again. And so this isn't about favoring Jews or Gentiles. This is God in his justice, God in his righteousness saying, I'll judge whom I please based on their treason against me, the creator God. Just keep that in mind. Since the judgment of God is here, and since it's clearly severe, our second focus, which leads us to communion, is figuring out how to avoid it. Like we, Nobody wants this. Now, you might think this is terrible. That doesn't mean it's not true. Don't, don't think that because something is unpleasant, you can just hope it away. There are plenty of things that are absolutely true that aren't pleasant. This is one of them. 
So how do we escape the judgment of God, which seems to us more severe than it ought to be, but that's because we don't think sin's that big of a deal? How do we escape it? The king of Ai is killed, and then he's hung on a tree, and then he's buried under a pile of rocks at the city gate. Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, says that a person convicted of a capital offense could be killed and then could be hung in a tree, and that's basically a, a solemn warning to other people who are thinking about per, you know, perpetrating a capital offense, and that the person hung in a tree should be considered cursed by God. That's Deuteronomy 21, 23. A person hung in a tree, capital offense, death, later hung on the tree, is cursed by God. Not because he's in the tree, but because he did something that warranted being hung in a tree. He's, he's cursed for what he did. So the king of Ai is cursed by God. And all the people of Ai suffered the judgment of God as well. And at this point, this book feels suffocating. You're like, everyone's dying. Any of y'all watch the show 1883? It's the prequel to Yellowstone. It's how I felt when I watched that show. Like literally Everyone dies in 1883. I don't, I don't know if y'all... Don't watch it. It was... Like, I'll, I'll ruin it for you. The girl who is young and delightful, who is the narrator, she dies. Have you ever seen another show where the narrator dies? Like, I don't know how they keep narrating. She's dead. Like, it's un, it doesn't work. I mean, like, Sam Shepard gets to Oregon. He dies. You know, like... Every, you know, Tim McGraw, Faith Hill, everyone's dead. There will not be a second season. I mean, like, there's nobody left. That's how I feel about this passage. Like, everyone's dying. How do we escape it? How do we escape it? Here's the irony. The only way to escape judgment is actually more Judgment this time leveled not against a Gentile king, the king of Ai, but against the king of the Jews. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us. He, he bought us out of the marketplace. He redeemed us from the curse of the law, the fact that we fell short and therefore deserved condemnation. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. A quotation from Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. Jesus, just like the king of Ai, who was a Gentile, who was a pagan, who deserved the wrath of God, just like that king, King Jesus, is hung on a tree. Not because he sinned but to bear the consequence of our sins. Jesus endured the wrath of God, the judgment of God for us. He was cursed so that we might be forgiven. We talked earlier about sacrifice. And, and I, I made this maybe profound, maybe stupid point, saying you can't have sacrifice without limited resources. And, and God, because he is infinite in all his attributes, he's not sacrificial. He's generous, but he's not sacrificial in his generosity. Here's a notable exception. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. God doesn't have a multitude of sons. He had one son, and he sent him to die. And he sent him to die so that you might live. He sent him to die so that you, by your faith in him, might not bear the consequence of your own sin and face the judgment that comes like the show 1883 where everyone dies. And we run to the shadow of the cross. And we are safe in that place and only in that place because we are sinners and God is righteous and there has to be something that fills the gap, that bridges the gap between that. And it is the person and the work of Jesus Christ, crucified and then resurrected, that we might have life. We're going to take communion now. Take some time as the musicians get up and just some still time and pray and thank God for redemption. The fact that Jesus was cursed so that we might be forgiven. Celebrate that. If you need to repent of sins in the wake of that, do so so that you would not take communion in an unworthy manner. But when you come, come with hearts that are glad. Glad because a righteous God has made a way for you, a sinful person, to be adopted and called son or daughter by the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. Pray.